Thanks for waking up with WKOK Sunrise on News Radio 1070 WKOK and WKOK.com. And thank you so much for joining us on WKOK Sunrise. Mark Lawrence here, Rob Sanders on the other side of the glass. He'll make sure the Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the podcasts are loaded up by the time we're done with our interview. In the studio with us now, Mitch Troutman is here. He's a former Treverton resident, now living in the soft coal region of uh, Pittsburgh. But he's an author, an activist, and co-founder of Anthracite Unite, which would be another story for another day. But uh, he's also written a new book called The Bootleg Coal Rebellion, the Pennsylvania Miners Who Seized an Industry, 1925 to 1942. So, Mitch, welcome aboard. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. I mean, this is really something, this uh, bootleg mining. We kind of get in a little bubble in our world. We kind of forget how hard it was for us to get to this point, how hard people work just to stay alive, and how hard one particular culture and uh, sort of segment of our world uh, lived in the past. So give us a sort of an introduction to maybe just the resilience and toughness of the coal industry itself and well, the people in the coal industry itself, and then we'll dig into this uh, bootlegging. How tough is the mining life? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, first off, I'm I'm not a miner. Uh, some people have taken me down so I could see how it goes, but uh, you know, clearly it was really not just hard work, but it was hard life, hard living, hard attitude. You know, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people lost their lives. You know, the black lung is a terrible way to go that a lot of them end up going, which is you know a slow suffocation over time. And uh, there's there's a lot of bleakness, a lot of bleakness, but also a lot of pride because you knew you took your life in your hands every day you're doing it. And so when you came back up to the surface, you know, a lot of times the attitude was, I'm not going to let anybody tell me nothing because uh, I might die tomorrow. So why not just live today? Now tell me about your bootlegging relatives. Oh yeah. So I didn't even know this until I started working on this book that uh, back in the times of the Great Depression, when the book takes place, um, there were there were about 7,000 bootleg coal miners mining coal illegally off company land, especially Reading Anthracite's land. And uh, I had asked my pappy while he was still alive a few times, um, John Tobias is his name, uh, you know, do you know anything about this? No, I don't know anything about that. Until one, until I finally found a picture, and it was a picture actually of the state governor visiting the bootleg coal mines back in 37, I want to say. And he looked at the picture and said, those guys ain't miners. I'm like, oh yeah? He's like, yeah, I remember back when, uh, you know, my brother, he ran the winch and da-da-da-da-da out in Gown City, and it turned out his family had been bootlegging, but he was uh, born in 32, and so he would have been, you know, about 10 when World War II came around and kind of wrapped things up from that era. But he had some memories It just took seeing the pictures to to, to uh, bring him back up again. Um, but then another thing I found while researching is when uh, the World War II draft came around, when people filled out their cards. On the back of it, you had to write your profession, and the bootleg miners, the illegal miners, they would just write independent miner. And I found a card from my great-grandfather on the other side of my family that said independent miner. So... Okay, um, yeah. so we're setting up an industry in a, a segment of uh, the coal region of Pennsylvania for this. It ta- let's start in 1924. What's happening in the mining industry in 1924? 
The mines are thriving. The businesses are booming. Everybody's working for wages that are too low. Yeah. Um, the industry is kind of at its peak around then, uh, the, the anthracite coal industry specifically. And, uh, yeah, they have unions, and they're in constant battle. The companies are always trying to lower the wages, increase the hours, uh, you know, push people harder. And then the miners, through their unions, are always trying to increase the wages, make things safer for themselves. Um, and that leads into a big strike in 1925-1926, which is through the winter, which is a problem because at this point, there's no there's no oil heat, there's no electric heat. Everybody on the East Coast is heating their house with anthracite coal. And so when they go on strike, it, it really shuts things down. You know, It has the whole nation's attention. And uh, to make it through this strike, as they had done before, they would uh, dig their own coal, you know, to just keep their houses going through the winter and maybe sell a little bit here and there. Um, and then the, the strike wraps up. Nobody's really happy with the result, but, you know, uh, it's back to work they go. But then later, uh, in a few years, when the mines start closing down, they start reopening those little holes they had made. And uh, first, it's just to heat their homes. First, they're doing it in secret. But then more and more, they're they're selling it. They eventually, people start buying trucks and trucking it around the country. Um, and uh, that's why I call it seizing an industry, because they end up being, the bootleggers end up producing as much coal as Reading Anthracite itself. Okay, so you're a bootlegger. You're going to sneak onto with trucks and winches and pumps and stuff and uh, ventilation stuff and equipment and men sneak onto Reading Anthracite land and dig a slope down a hill, and yeah. they're not going to do anything about it? Yeah, well, uh, th there's a lot I can say about that question. There's Basically, there's two periods. In the first period, it's uh, it's secretive. You know, they're doing it at night. They're taking all the tools home with them. They're uh, Even the rock that they pull out, they're taking home with them, because if they leave a big pile of rocks, somebody's going to know something's up. You know, they cover cover up the, uh, the hole and things like that. And at the time, there's the coal and iron police are the main police force who are privately employed by the coal company. Companies, but they have the power to take you to jail. Um, and, you know, they're arresting people when they catch them. They're also destroying the mines when they find them. And uh, that's a lot of work get, just to get blown up again, you know? Um, but eventually, so many people are doing it, and they just reach a certain point where there's like no other option, you know? So, one story is uh, a Redding cop comes around, and there's a miner down in his mine. And the Redding cop says, Get out here, I'm blowing up your mine. And the guy says, Just blow it up. What's the point anyway? You know, and the the cop doesn't blow it up. He doesn't want to kill the guy, um, but that's kind of around a turning point when people are just like, you know what? What else are we even supposed to do? Um, and also, the the power of the coal and iron police is waning. Uh, they're not very popular. People really also like buying their bootleg coal for a dollar or two less than company coal. Uh, so the bootleggers, their support just builds and builds, and um, eventually. Uh, I don't have the quote bookmarked or I'd pull it up, but uh, eventually um, the bootleg miners, when they get arrested, they call for a jury trial. Um, this would happen, you know, down in uh, Pottsville, happened here in Sunbury a lot. They'd get arrested, they'd call for a jury trial, and the jury wouldn't convict them. Because they're local people, and they're their friends and neighbors and relatives, and they're buying their coal a dollar cheaper. And Right, and um, at a certain point, some towns like Treverton, you know, they don't have any businesses open, I mean, any, uh, any industry open anymore. And so it's the bootleg dollars that are keeping whole towns afloat. And so even, like, the merchants and everything eventually get behind the bootleg miners, at least in, like, Northumberland and uh, Schuylkill County, areas where there were still more mines open, say, Hazleton, people weren't near as supportive, and uh, people
people were a lot more likely to get arrested if they were trying to bootleg coal. So at its peak, now we're after 1925, let's say we're 1935, at its peak, how many men and women involved in the bootleg industry? Yeah, so it's about 13,000, um, about 7,000 miners. There's uh, almost 3,000 people who are trucking the coal, right? Riding in pairs, going anywhere from Baltimore to Connecticut. Uh, and then there's also bootleg breakers, people who set up shop to uh, more often in town. You know, they're not, they're on their own land or land that is legally agreed upon, but they're buying the bootleg coal and then uh, sorting it and sizing it the way a company would so that the final product is a little cleaner, a little more uniform, and they can get a little bit more money for it. Um, And enforcement's not widespread. This is a booming industry. Yeah, another thing at this time is the state police are still kind of a young thing, and they're still a political force, right? They're controlled by the governor, and the bootleg miners, twice they ride down to Harrisburg in the back of coal trucks, about 10,000 strong, as a show of force. And with three different governors, they managed to work out a truce where as long as they didn't start shooting, they wouldn't send in the state police to interfere, you know? Now, like other crimes were still, uh, you know, being enforced. It, it wasn't everything. It was just specifically uh, mining coal off of somebody else's property that the state police wouldn't interfere with. Now, are there some bootleggers who are mining on their own land and they're big coal companies? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... I'm I'm telling strokes right now, but really, with this many people doing this, there's there's nothing uniform about it. People are mining anywhere they can. Uh, there's people who, every once in a while, you still hear about somebody in Shamokin moves, you know, some big slab in their basement and finds an entrance to a coal hole. You know, there were even some businesses who started a mine in their backyard, you know, and just employ a few people to keep that mine going. Um, it was it was every sort of way. And then towards the end of the Depression, you have people who start making agreements with landowners uh, to lease the land they're mining on. And um, they, they called themselves independent miners. And uh, there's still actually some of them today working out in throughout the lower coal region. Not, not as many as there used to be. But so slowly it became legalized as well. So we're, we're coming up into the 40s now. World War II is ramping up and the U.S. is getting involved in that. And that uh, doesn't really knock out bootleg mining completely, but that really reduces it. Right. Uh, You know, so many of these miners are young men who get drafted pretty quickly, um, especially because they're considered unemployed. Um, And then also the war industries are coming in, too. Uh, Factories are being retrofitted to build things for the war, and so they're soaking up employment that way. And there's a little bit of a a crackdown on just unemployment in general. They want want you in the war factories, you know? Okay. So but um, some bootlegging continues. Right. And, you know, you got to end a book somewhere. So I really didn't get into it after the war. But people come back. Uh, many people keep bootlegging. And there's still uh, plenty of confrontation and things like that. But it's never at the scale it was during the Depression. All right. Now, br- just bring us to the present. What What's happening present day as it becomes to either bootlegging or independent mining? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, if there's anybody out there um, mining off somebody else's land in secret, I don't know about it. Or if I do, I wouldn't tell you on the radio, Mark. Sorry. Right. <laughs> um, Sworn uh, to secrecy. Yeah. But there's uh, there's still some independent mines who, uh, independent miners who go underground, but I believe there's only about three of those mines left. Um, many of them have switched to small-scale uh, surface mining. Um, but, yeah, every year there's less and less of them. The 
part of it is the the regulation um, is all built around the large bituminous mines of elsewhere in the country, and so when you try to enforce that to a small family mine, where you have perhaps two, three people going underground at a time, uh, it really it really doesn't work, you know. And they run into a lot of trouble that way. And then the price of coal is always going down as well. And the bootleggers have an annual picnic that continues to this very day. Yeah, the bootleggers picnic. Um, it used to be put on by David A. Lucas, who unfortunately passed away recently. And so now it's b- being continued by the uh, Underground Mine Rescue, which is sort of like a volunteer fire company, but for when there's mine accidents. Um, and uh, that that just happened the other weekend. So every... every uh, August, September. In the August. Higgins and Valley View area. Right, right, right. But anybody who's a descendant is invited, um, which actually is another thing I wanted to go back to real quick. Uh, you had asked about my family and my own discovery. The other thing I've discovered is pretty much if your family was from one of these lower region coal towns, they probably were involved, even if you haven't heard about it, just because the simply the scale of it, everybody had their hand in it some way because it was the only thing to do. All right. You want folks to go to bootlegcoal.com. You're going to Lewisburg tonight to the Himmelright Library tomorrow to the Foundry in Treverton, uh, Saturday to the Washington Hotel in Minersville, Sunday to Tamaqua to the Hope and Coffee uh, facility, and the Pioneer Tunnel in Ashland on Sunday, August 21st. Then you got a bunch of September and October dates, including up at Otto's Bookstore truly a book lover's paradise in the heart of downtown Williamsport. I've said that one million times on their ads. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for bringing this book to life and this segment of our great, great coal culture to life. Yeah, thank you for having me, and I'm really excited to be sharing it with everyone. Mitch Troutman, former Treverton resident, author, activist, co-founder of Anthracite Unite, bootlegcoal.com, his book, The Bootleg Coal Rebellion.